Hamilton, and, and this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Up top, you guys, I'm going to give you our now weekly reminder that this is the podcast where best friends and comedians, Claire Parker and Ashley Hamilton, really read the memoirs that you don't have to and then add their opinion that nobody asked for. If you are listening, though, from here on out, you are officially asking for our opinion because it is our podcast where we opine it is an opine cast so that's the kind of hot takes you're in for if you listen to this podcast they will be sometimes cruel and they will be snarky and sardonic we are never trying to be cruel it's just in our cunty ass nature to sometimes get a little too mean and we don't even want to we love these celebrities except Steve-O. We want the best for them. We mm-hmm. want to read these books, learn about them, and learn who they are in their own words. And sometimes we get a little mean. We don't mean it. It's a fair analysis. And I'm just saying that if you get mad at us for being mean, that's your fault at this point. And if you come to our reviews to tell us that you hate us and that we're stupid, you are actually being just as mean as we are being. And why don't you start by being the change you wish to see in the world? That being said, our little squirmy wormies, the listeners, the bookworms, we love you with all of our hearts. I don't know if you know this, but Ashley is officially in the hospice care section of her life. She I am. Did I'm turn over 30. the hill. I hit the hill and now I'm rolling down it. She's getting all cut up on forks and knives. What's what Why are there forks and knives on the hill? I couldn't think of what would be on a hill. Pebbles. We want to say thank you so much. Likes for days 44 and Rara. You guys are keeping Ashley going. I actually have a year and a half of life juice left in me. Yeah. But Ashley should have been dead for hours now. Hours ago. And I have one thing keeping me going. And it is a pacemaker powered by five star reviews. (laughs) So thank you guys. Ashley, that being said, what was the name of your memoir this week? I would title my memoir this week. Let's get sorted. S-O-R-D-I-D. Sort, like a sorting of files. S-O-R-T-E-D. Yes. I was going to spell it and then I was like, I don't know that I could. (laughs) So I'm just trying to get organized. I, I have determined that 30 is just a number, just another day in the calendar. You know, I was worried that I would all of a sudden become old and decrepit. And I stayed out till 6 a.m. on the night of my birthday and only slept for two hours and emerged only stronger so yeah you look strong (laughs) thank you not physically strong but mentally I have a mental toughness to me now that cannot be stopped by America's youth anyway what I do need is I did realize I was like okay I am technically older I do technically have a clock attached to my biology I was on the phone with my grandma last night and she is pretty livid that I haven't found the love of my life yet and she was like you need to just get on those websites I have a new computer she was like you need to open that fancy new computer of yours you don't have to sign up for a website but just browse browse the Jews and see if there's anyone that you want (laughs) She wants me to just take a look around, see if I can find a lover. And I say, you know what? I will. Do, I'll try better. I think I can be a little cavalier with my relationships and love life. And I think that I need to take it a, a tiny. I'm not saying I'm about to get serious. I'm saying I'll take it a tiny bit more seriously. Tell them what happened to you this week. You got sent flowers by a boy. I did get sent flowers by a boy. I don't know if that's a boy that I don't take seriously, but. It was cool. So my parents came to town and surprised me. And this guy that I've been on one date with sent me flowers to my apartment. But we have not exchanged last names yet. So it was addressed to Ashley. Not sure. Funny. And then my parents were like, how do you know your address? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) How did he know your address? He remembered it. I guess he just remembered it when he was leaving. I'm a dumb slut, you guys.
No, you're not. You're a smart slut. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun weekend. I had a nice time. Even though I feel 25 and a half, I don't think I can live like I'm 25 and a half. So mm-hmm. that's what I've determined. But I don't feel old or gross or st- or bad. I just feel like I'm like, maybe I should, you know, act like a, a kind of an adult. Sometimes. Not all the time. You pay your own rent. You make your own breakfast. I don't know. What else do adults do? I don't even really eat breakfast. Okay. Well, I guess that's a place to start. Claire. Yes. What would you title your chapter of your memoir this week? The journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Did you make that up? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just a way of looking at the world that I've been using as a lens, sort of, and feel free to adopt it. But definitely it's mine, and definitely nobody had thought of it before. I quit last Tuesday, so Yay. I'm technically still on the clock until June 22nd, and I'm just kind of starting to get, much like you, my life into order and figure out how I'm going to fill my time, how I'm going to make this work, and good luck to me, mostly, I would say. I think best of luck to you in your next adventure. Thanks. And I hope that for me, for you, because, (laughs) oh, are we tied at the hips when it comes to success, huh? Should we talk about this week's book? Yes. Ashley. Yeah, Claire? Let's talk about our book this week, Lily Allen, My Thoughts Exactly. What were your thoughts exactly? I was just going to say that at you. Damn. What were your thoughts exactly on Lily Allen? Okay. So when I lived in Los Angeles, when I was a young sprout but 20 years old I had a free trial of Sirius XM in my car and so I would listen to BBC Radio 1 all the time and that was a big Lily Allen time so I was always listening to Lily Allen Lady Sovereign Jesse J the whole legs I fell in love with Fern Cotton the presenter I didn't know that much about her personal life other than that she was quite brash in the press what were your thoughts exactly? My thoughts exactly were not that many at all. It's one of those things where it's like, oh my God, I knew every single one of her hit songs. I like yes. didn't realize what a hit she was. I feel like she's one of those people that she thought it was kind of indie to like her. I don't know if you know this, but I famously believe I discovered Kesha <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> I now realize that that was what they wanted me to believe, that their record yeah. labels had tricked me into thinking that. And so even though I am a fool, I'm a fool in the hands of some of the most brilliant minds in America with the billions of dollars to back them. I feel like I knew that she had a specific look and that look was that kind of sloppy look. She had that Amy Winehouse thing where it always looked like her makeup had been done three days before. Looking at those looks, it's crazy what stylists have done to celebrities. They used to look like shit. They used to look like you or me. Those skinny jeans and those tank tops. I mean, good Lord, I was wearing it up until 2015 almost. But what a look they used to have. It used to be so unplugged looking where they would just get up on their stage and do whatever the fuck they wanted. And now the level of performance is so high for even the lowest, I think. Yeah. I know it was a direct response to the girl groups of the day, which in the U.S. would have been Spice Girls. It would have been. Well, they were also Spice Girls. But, but girl, I was going to say compared to Girls Aloud, which was specifically British. British. But I do think there was. This like, fuck you guys. We're not the cookie cutter pretty girls. I mean, her whole persona was very fuck you. I'm not the cookie cutter pretty girl. And it's funny that you talk about how she felt very indie, especially in the U.S. I don't I know we have U.K. listeners, so I'm sure that this is insane to hear. But I remember hearing about Lily Allen and listening to her with my friend Maddie, who was kind of alt at the time. And we just thought we were very cool. Yeah. And then I saw that she had a number one song in England and it was like, okay, she was truly just 
Britney Spears, but not hot. It's so funny that we're like, oh, your BMI is over 19. I guess you're indie. (laughs) She really played into that hand. Her whole thing was that she knew she wasn't as hot as the hot girls. So she went full on converse with dresses, which was at the time very alt. (laughs) When she was describing her outfits of the prom dress with the high top sneakers with the chunky gold jewelry, I was just like, oh, my God, the way that trickled down into my own life. How Tumblr. How Tumblr of it all. You can see the Photoshop over her that would go, rawr. I can see her posed up against a fence with her hands on their fence and the butt on the fence, like leaning forward with her side bangs covering her face, being like, rawr. (laughs) I mean, that is her era. That is the era. And it did affect me. It was very, I'm not like other girls, which accidentally became just as toxic as being just like girls. Well, it was just every girl was either the girl or not like the other girls. It was a 50-50 chance. It was a coin toss whether or not you were or were not like the other girls. (laughs) Anyway, she ended up being a lot like the girls who weren't like the other girls. (laughs) So let's get into her life. This is going to be quite the cultural clash because she is first and foremost a British star and she comes from not British royalty, but a real British scene. And so the beginning of the book is hilarious to me because she's name dropping a ton. And I am like, I know you're trying to impress me with these names and not one of them rings a bell. I will say I feel like it came across a lot less annoying because we don't know the names. We've given other stars a lot of shit for their hardcore name droppiness. But because I only recognized like eight names in this book, I was like, oh, she was pretty, you know, just telling the stories as they happened. And now that I think about the amount of first and last names that we read, I'm like, I think that if I was British, I would have found that very annoying. (laughs) Or at least relevant. I was just like, sure, whatever. So relevant, her- but obnoxious. So she came from a media savvy family. And I think that's yeah. what's important because one of the big themes in Lily Allen's life is that she's constantly accused of nepotism and she is very defensive against that. So her father was Keith Allen, who was, I guess, a famous comedian presenter. I guess he did some work in the music industry as well. He was about town. He was quite successful, but not obviously world famous. I think he had that almost extremely famous disease where he always felt very resentful about not being more famous. When you're a comedian specifically, you're coming up together. You rise up with a group of people. And so even if you're not the one, you probably have a lot of super famous friends. And boy, did he. And boy, did he. So his best friend is Damien Hurst, which is the only name I actually recognize from the name dropping. Mm -hmm. Damien Hurst is the most famous current living artist. Alive. It was like him and Jeff Koons. I think Jeff Koons might have eclipsed him recently, but I would say before that, Damien Hurst was like the top dog. I've heard of him and I've only even heard of two other artists. Her mom is Allison Owen, who is not famous, but she was a film producer who produced some pretty famous films. Yeah, her mom was a film producer who was not famous by name, but it seems had a shocking amount of success. She was very regularly in America for work. She was gone for kind of long periods of time. Sometimes she'd take the kids and sometimes she wouldn't. But when she didn't, I don't know who was watching them because Keith Allen was not there. He was a horrible father who had kind of no interest in being their father. He left pretty early on. He very rarely took care of them. And he was a big boozer and and drug user. And so was the moms. We never really get into any of the fallout from her mom's drug use, but she mentions quite a few times that her mom would leave for months for work and really partake. One of the biggest and only consequences named in the book, aside from the obvious and unavoidable consequence of when you are a heroin addict, it's going to be hard on the old kids, is her mom ended up marrying Harry Enfield, 
who's mm-hmm. another person that is said with the reverence in this book like he's Jerry Seinfeld and she says he was the most famous comedian, comedian at the time mm-hmm. so I did look it up it seems that like he had the Harry Enfield show so maybe he was Jimmy Kimmel of England it seems like he had a very popular talk show that was like the top talk show at the time okay okay and he is the only good man in the book would you say I would say there's like two or three other okay men in the book so he's like the only good man in her immediate life he is a good father to her Allison Owen who is Lily Allen's mother comes to this marriage with three kids Sarah from a different father mm-hmm. and then Lily Allen and Alfie Allen Alfie Allen actually goes on to be he's like a star of Game of he's Thrones he's quite successful yeah he's in Game of Thrones all eight seasons I looked it up he's cute wow and there's a song about him called Alfie apparently that he hates. I remember that song it's literally about how he smokes too much weed in his room and like when will he get his life together because he's disappointing their parents <laughs> It's funny coming from her because she was such a fuck up, but we'll get there. So anyway, when they lived with Harry, it seems like he did a great job taking care of them. He took care of them more than the mother did, who was always on set. He would pick them up from school. He would take care of them when they were sick. So he was not just a famous comedian, but actually a very good father to her. After six years, they break up, though, because of mom's drug addiction. Yes. She did a thing where she would go to a friend's house and she had this idea if it was always at a friend's house. But then the problem was she was always at friend's houses. Yeah. As drugs tend to go. So the main thing in Lily's childhood is that she is forgotten she is not important it seems like the mother and the oldest daughter Sarah have quite the bond she says that her father could have anywhere from eight to 14 children they don't know he was a real slayer as they say he slayed the ladies and she was just kind of left behind she was in and out of all these different boarding schools posh private schools public schools at one point she dropped out altogether but her childhood is riddled with memories of literally being left at school and they forgot to pick her up being left at boarding school they forgot to come get her I mean that's the commonality in all of her life is that nobody notices her so her mother was absent and negligent and her father was out and out awful I would say she has the story about one of the first times she has sex is with a friend of her dad's who's like a tv star who's 19 or 20 and she's 14 and so she tells one of her dad's friends and she's like, I think I wanted to get back to my dad because I was upset. You know, I was 14. I didn't know how to verbalize it, but I knew that that was wrong. He had taken advantage of like she was messengering something to him, basically. And he got her up in a hotel and had sex with her. She was 14 years old. And when her dad found out, it became like a joke amongst his friends that they were always like, oh, how do we use this info against the TV star? Like we could blackmail him. And it became like this bit where they would prank call him and pretend to blackmail him with statutory rape of their own daughter. And it was horrible. Their father, his whole thing was life's a joke, nothing serious, just have fun. But really that ended up just meaning you wait upstairs at the Groucho Club while I do drugs. Do you know what the Groucho Club is? No. I looked it up. Do you want to know what it is? Yeah. It is like a Soho house in London. It's a private social club for people in the entertainment world. Interesting. And so that's where she grew up. So when we talk about nepotism, I do think it's important to say she has had, from the time she was six months old, she grew up at a place where huge stars like Rachel Weiss and famous comedians go and take the piss, as I believe the British would say. <laughs> that like, is what they would say. You're right. <laughs> yeah. And I do want to acknowledge that she also acknowledges at this point that being just quietly forgotten isn't the most traumatic a childhood could be, but it is her trauma. Yeah, that's the narrative that built the Lily Allen as we know. At this point in the book, I was like, I actually really appreciate the way that she has so much awareness. And I was like, I like her. I could see myself being friends with her. I I always do this where I'll be like 15 pages into a book and declare my feelings about the person. And then it changes 48 times during it. But at this point, I was like, she seems extremely aware. And later, I think I've realized this is one of the books I think that we've read that's like very distinctly a product of therapy. At certain points, some of it is very candid, very fun, very whatever. And then parts of it are just very 
prescriptive of exactly what went wrong in her brain. There's a lot of intellectual awareness. I don't know that she's fixed. I don't know that we're out of the woods no, yet. No, no, no. I don't. We're not. But I think that she is writing it from the distilled perspective of a therapist. I agree. So the big change in her life after all of this forgottenness and boarding schools and public schools, she drops out of school and she's 17. And she gets in with a very posh group of people. I mean, this is another one of the things where she's like name dropping everybody's grandparents and she's listing counts and stuff. And I'm like, this means fuck all to me. Yes. But she ends up falling in love with a very rich boy named Lester. Lester is the love of her life at this time. She is obsessed with him. They move in together right near Portobello Road. She loves thrifting and chilling and she's waiting tables, kind of trying to figure out what she wants in life. And it really is just love. I mean, I think that one of her driving factors is feeling cared for. And so she's decided that he is everything. She describes her the book that her primary problem and addiction is codependency. Yes. There are other drugs, but... But the biggest drug of all for her is feeling love. At this point, she's decided because she needs something to say that she wants to be a singer. And this doesn't actually mean anything to her. She just says it one day because somebody's like, what do you want to do? And she's like, I'll be a singer. And they're like, you can't be. And she's like, I'll show you. She tells her dad. And she does have a nice voice. She sang in choruses and stuff. And her dad gets her a record too. Her dad had a band with Damien yes. Hurst and one other guy. And the song went number two on the charts. This got him a ton of cash. And so he saw this as an opportunity. And so he was like, okay, then I can get my daughter a record deal and we'll get her some money. And she says, I don't know if he legitimately just wanted to support my dreams or if he got some kind of finder's fee for finding me. Mm -hmm. But I choose to think he supported my dreams. I don't think that he did. So they start working on an album. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's nonsense. She has no voice as an artist at that point. She just doesn't even know what she's doing. She's just kind of like one day said she wanted to be a singer. And now she's in the studio with her dad and she doesn't really know how she got there. And it just goes nowhere. And it's like she has to sue to get out of it. They eventually leave it just because nobody wants anything. But this is the beginning of her weird money problems where they say they're going to sue her for 3.4 million pounds yeah. because she's breaking contract. And she freaks out. And her mom's like, I mean, you have no assets. So they could come for you. But what would they get? And so her way of dealing is she just takes the letter and puts it under her bed and is like, now it's done. And then Lester leaves. And at this point, I think they're 18 years old, maybe. And he decides that he wants to go travel the world with his friends. And I guess they technically stay together for a time until one day he just calls and is like, by the way, I don't think that this is working out. So I guess she stayed home just kind of waiting and pining. And then he was like, by the way, we're done. And she goes to India to find him. And can't find him. She finds out India's big. <laughs> She's like, I just assumed we run into each other at the local shops. <laughs> and then she comes home. She's distraught. She overdoses kind of on purpose her mom takes her to the hospital they pump her stomach and then they enter her into a cycle so she's institutionalized and it helps it's good I mean it was a cry for help and she got help she did they stabilize her she gets back home she's like what am I gonna do now I think the plan was for her to go to florist school and then she gets a call from George Lamb so she had met this man in Ibiza two years earlier her family was on vacation in the south of France she ran away to Ibiza for the weekend decided she'd stay for the summer she got a gig selling records and ecstasy. Yes. <laughs> One day she'd been kicked out of her hostel because she wasn't paying the rent or whatever on her hostel. So she shows up to a club with her suitcase. Some DJ is like, you can stay with me. <laughs> she meets this old man named George Lamb and he's like, don't stay with that DJ. He's going to assault you. Stay with me. And she goes being like, well, I guess that's who I'll hook up with. Like, whatever man wants to have sex with me, please let me sleep on your couch. So she goes to this guy's apartment. And sure enough, he just makes up a bed on the couch, lets her sleep outside. And when she wakes up, he had gone through her phone to call her mom and he's like, hey, I called your mom. She's going to come get you. 
this is not safe. It meant so much to her that he just did what a dad would do. That was like a good, decent, normal thing. That a man found a young girl at a club with a suitcase and said, don't let a stranger kidnap and kill you or... <laughs> nobody had ever mm -hmm. been so kind to her before so anyway she gets out of the psychiatric ward a few years later and she gets a call from none other than george lamb and he's like what are you up to and she's like i just got released from trying to kill myself and he's like perfect you're free then <laughs> and he goes i'm gonna make you a singer so he sends her up north to some cabin where a high-end producer is and she just spends a week in this house with a producing team making the ep he commissions this demo he basically just pays for her to create this project and then they start shopping it around to labels. And at this point, she is, like we've said, extremely well connected. And she says it was actually a hindrance because at that point she was dating a guy who was very well connected in the music industry and everyone was afraid that if they signed her and nothing ever happened, it would piss him off. And not acknowledging his girlfriend was easier than angering him. Can I tell you something? That seems insane. That seems insane. And now that we're saying it out loud, because I was just like, why is that so wrong? I am now seeing that obviously what was happening was not that they were worried about making him mad down the line. They were like, the only reason she has this demo is because she's this guy's girlfriend. Yeah. But I do want to say she was deeply connected in that she was always partying at all the coolest clubs. All of her friends were kind of like the music scene, club rats. Every friend was a DJ. Every friend was a producer. Yeah, she knew a lot of people. So eventually, after knocking down every door for a Janice Dickinson eternity, a.k.a. six months, she gets a record deal. And not a good deal. No, a bad deal. Parlophone Records. I don't know him. Me either. She said they did Coldplay. X and Y had just come out at the time, mm -hmm. which means they were doing something. Doing something. A five album deal with a 25000 quid, $25,000 squiggly advance. <laughs> squiggly's pound we have a dollar sign they have a squiggly sign and they just kind of like signed it and sat there so here's where she got lucky they had just paid a million dollars for a reunion from all saints and those girls would not get into the studio they were just having trouble wrangling those ladies into the studio and physically they could not get them there but they had already rented the studio and they'd already gotten some giant producer yes greg so then lily got to go record the rest of her album in this space while they were trying to wrangle All Saints. And that, you know, was pretty lucky, but they still didn't believe in her literally at all. They kind of just signed her. They spent a little bit of money and they were like, okay, well, I guess eventually we'll drop her or something like that. But this is right at the emergence of social media. MySpace was a thing and Lily Allen knew a lady rapper named Lady Sovereign, who was like, just put your music on MySpace. And since they weren't paying any attention to her, they just didn't give a shit about what she was doing. She did start putting her music on MySpace. And let me tell you, that space loved to hear it. This has to be the most 2006 sentence. My friend Lady Sovereign suggested I put my music onto MySpace. And so she started a blog on her MySpace and she started putting music on MySpace and people really connected with it. And her imagery, which I think cannot be forgotten because I do think that that is actually critical into what got her her initial. Yes. The raw aesthetic. She was very go to a vintage store, buy random loud blingy shit and just throw it on and layer it and have fun. And so she was just throwing her music out there, developed a good cult following. People really liked her. She pressed like 500 vinyl records of a single song. Those flew off the shelves. She would do these remix tapes and then she would mm -hmm. spray paint the remix tapes herself to do the art on the front. So a magazine called OMM asked her to do a little interview. She didn't have any press photographs. So they came and did a styled photograph of her 
And that did so well that they decided to put her on the cover. And when word got back to her label that she was going to be on the cover of this magazine, they were like, wait, do people like you? We didn't even know that you were ours. Yeah. She blows up. They start pushing her. They release her song, Smile. It goes numero uno. Can I just say one really interesting little fact about Smile? Because she also explains to us that she knew literally nothing about songwriting. When she was up north recording this album, she did not know a single word that they were saying to her. They were like, okay, now we need to record the middle eight. And she had to call George and be like, what's a middle eight? She didn't know anything about the structure of songwriting, about the music industry. She was just really learning as she went and because she had decided she wanted to be a singer. And this song, Smile... She had been listening to Hit Me Baby One More Time by our Lord and Savior, Britney Spears, and just kind of started riffing on it until Smile came out, which I found to be a very interesting fact. She becomes crazy famous. This is 2006. The paparazzi was really bad at that time. It was just as online tabloids had started heating up print tabloids still existed the paparazzi was absolutely insatiable and there were no laws in place yet and lily was perfect because her personality is really like she's the girl that just says it also she did a lot of drugs and drank a lot so she was always fucked up and she was always ready to give you a piece of her goddamn mind this is something that i find very interesting is so when she started to become extremely famous she had a really bizarre relationship with it she says it really becomes something outside of yourself there's you and then there's cartoon lily in the tabloids and that's not me but it kind of is me and she talks about this having a piece of you just put on display for the public and you don't exist anymore and people don't see you as a person but then she will throw so many other celebrities under the bus because she's like I just didn't even realize that what I was talking about was a person she also thinks of other celebrities as a concept she writes a song called Cheryl Tweedy about why can't I be pretty like Cheryl Tweedy aka Cheryl Cole aka the father of One Direction Liam's baby she says but even when you know it's all smoke and mirrors you still sometimes take it seriously she acknowledges that all the fame and all of that is not real but she also she was addicted to it and also she talks I think a lot and interestingly about the journalists they'll take something you say and they'll kind of recut it to make it look bad that's fair game she's like I did say that they did provoke me into saying it but I did say it so those are my words she's like the tabloids will take a photo of you sneezing and act like you punched your mom or something and she's like but the problem is it does shape your world and she has a lot of insane examples of the way people in her own inner circle would respond to her based on what they had seen in the tabloids. So in many weird ways, the tabloids did start to shape her reality. And she is somebody who definitely has like borderline personality disorders. But I think yeah. looking and seeing herself and being like, who am I? Am I that person? Am I the person I think I am? What's true? And basing it off of that. She comes from a family, a showbiz family where fame is currency. Mm-hmm. And so instead of having a core group of people around you who just keep you in check and say, stop acting all full of yourself. You're not shit. You're still the Lily we grew up with. They are feeding off of it. They play into it. Even Lester sells a story to the tabloids. She hasn't seen him in years. She doesn't trust anybody around her. She gets an insane amount of paranoia and anxiety. And she it really eats away at her. One of the crazier stories is there's this story that's about to be run by the son. Mm-hmm. She has some new boyfriend that she was dating for a month or two. And they write her press team being like, can you confirm that Lily Allen is pregnant? And she's like, I'm not fucking pregnant. And she's just like, oh, this is so stupid. Like, what do I do? Blah, 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 whatever. Thinking not much of it. Sure enough, a week later, it turns out she's pregnant. And when she found out, she was five weeks pregnant. And she was just like, how did they know I was pregnant before I knew? Insane. Insane. And I do think that that would freak you out. She has to sneak an abortion, I guess, and pretend she had a miscarriage. To completely base her reality around the perceptions of people. Because if the son's going to run that she's pregnant, and she actually is pregnant, 
then she has to have an abortion, but she's like, I don't want people to know that. And also I don't want to have to tell my boyfriend because this will affect our relationship. She's like, it's weird to go up to this guy you're dating being like, I'm definitely going to get rid of this baby. And so she had to create this entire false narrative where they're really excited to have this baby. They had to announce it immediately. And then in a few weeks lie and pretend that it was a miscarriage. miscarriage. It's really crazy. She starts headlining festivals. She's really, really blowing up. She has a couple other little relationships she has a second album. She actually says she did not experience second album syndrome. She says the second album just fell right out of her. It was so easy to write. She did songs in the second album like The Fear. Who'd have known. Back to the beginning. 22, I think, was on the second album. Can I tell you one thing that I'm remembering that I found to be a huge appeal of Lily Allen mm-hmm. from an American gal perspective mm-hmm. is that she sings British. I want to talk a little bit about her songwriting philosophy, which I find interesting. So she talks about Who'd Have Known. So she was very proud of this song and she plays it for the label and they said, oh my God, we love that. The only problem is that it's currently number one on the charts. It's a song called Shine. She's like, oh, I I must have heard it on the radio. It earwormed and it was stolen. That just, I didn't mean to. And she is very frank about it's okay. They'll get the money for it. They'll get the publishing money. I'm not even going to try to make it my own big smash success. I get that. And she says there's a computer program now that can tell you if a song that you've written is a ripoff of someone else's and how much you should change it just to make it just different enough that you don't have to pay to use someone else's work. And I don't like doing that. If a song sounds good, it sounds good. Don't change it for the sake of saving money, but instead pay the money to whoever wrote the original music you've riffed. And I agree and disagree. I agree that yes, if you've riffed and taken someone else's song, they get the money for that song. She has this whole air of being this songwriter. She really views herself as a songwriter. And I I don't think you should change it for the sake of saving money. I think you should change it for the sake of writing a song that you wrote. So here's where I think the semantics matter. Yeah. I think she sees herself as a lyrics writer. Okay. I don't think she really thinks she's that good of a songwriter. Mostly she's working with producers. Mm -hmm. She didn't know what an eighth is. They add the chorus. She'll do the humming in the top line. But mostly I think she sees herself as somebody who writes lyrics. And that's why this book even she feels is so within her brand. At the end of the book, we'll get to it. But she kind of talks about I was a pop star and that was a one way of using my voice. But mostly she talks about my voice. I don't think she sees herself the way like Taylor Swift sees herself as someone who creates a melody, creates a beat, works with producers. Even Ariana Grande is obsessed with being in there and engineering the song herself yeah Lily Allen I think is really somebody who's like I can speak my truths in a way that people respect and she says at the beginning she's not a performer but what means the most to her is watching somebody word the lyrics back to her I guess that is all of the things that she says she is is very contradictory to me then because she also talks about admitting she says at one point that her voice is her strongest asset and then she says I was never going to be an epic great singer like Adele or any of these great so singers. So I think even here <laughs> the trick is not literally her voice as a vocalist. I mean her voice her is voice her sense is a, of self. Yeah. Like my voice is a comedian. And she says you know I'm a pop star but I'm not just like this pop performer who's what and it's. So I think if she had used the word perspective. Yeah. And I think to her, writing this book would be no different than writing a song. It's that what she means by my voice is her ability to take in experiences and verbalize them in ways that other women and people can experience along with her. And I like Who'd Have Known as a song, but I just think in general, you know, as a comedian, sometimes that does happen. And that's a totally normal thing to happen where you hear something and you don't remember that you heard it. And so then you wrote something incredibly similar. You don't change it for the sake of not copying. You change it for the sake of I want my thing to be original. Or you just stop doing that joke because you're like, well, it's already been done. My bad. Mm -hmm. And I get that. You know, you don't get money off of something for in music, something that's 
copied. And I agree that changing it for the sake of saving money isn't it. But I do think changing it for the sake of having it be your own original work is important. It actually didn't bother me that much because I don't really believe that there is any original work. All art is a conversation with all the art that's come before it. And as somebody who, you know, we spend a ton of time as comics watching people perform and doing their bits. And I've definitely had a lot of ideas based off of, I've heard somebody do a bit and been like, oh, I hear your premise and disagree. Yeah, totally. And so in that way, I'm like, to riff is okay. And I think the fact that she gave them all the royalties, I like don't hate that. Because I I do think she like heard that sound and resonated with it and then came up with my response to this song. I think it would have been worse for her to change it. Again, don't begrudge her for this opinion. I just find it interesting that she views herself. And then it goes right into a thing about how she won three Ivor Norello awards for that album. And they're the only things that mean anything to me because they're about the music industry. And so I guess I wasn't viewing it so much as lyrics versus composition because I do think it's very interesting that at her core, she views herself as an artist and then says she actually doesn't have a problem if it turns out her art is accidentally someone else's art. And I, I do think yeah. she thinks of herself as a lyricist. She doesn't know Which, fucking as shit about said, music. Her lyrics aren't that important. Her lyrics aren't that important. They're like... So that's where I, I was giving her the benefit of the doubt by being like, okay, you created these songs. The thing I will say is obviously she's successful. Clearly she does relate to people and people do like her music. I liked her music. I'm not going to sit here and act like she's a genius. She is a cool girl who was in the right place at the right time. A lot. And you can't even say she worked that hard because she was a real fuck up. It just worked <laughs> out for her. I think part of her appeal was that she was in the tabloids all the time. I do think that that was kept her relevant. Anyway, sex and relationships at that time. I just want to tell a quick little story. First of all, there was the Mike Skinner thing. So at this point, she's doing festivals a lot. She's on the road a lot. She's meeting a lot of other artists. She, again, is very codependent. So she'll hook up with someone and be like, we're in love. We're getting married. And they're like, oh, who are you? I have a wife. One of those people was... Liam Gallagher, baby. And who is Liam Gallagher? Liam Gallagher is a member of the band Oasis, the lead singer. He is the voice of Oasis. His brother, Noel Gallagher, is the songwriter, the the musician behind the band. They famously hate each other. Oasis is an incredible British rock band that would have been, they were a, a stadium rock band. They were a huge deal. I think that they would have been the greatest of all time if they had been able to be in a room together for longer than... You may know them as they did Wonderwall. So this was just a funny little tidbit for all the Oasis heads out there. She says that she met Liam when they were traveling to the festival. He was traveling with his half of Oasis because at that point, Oasis was still together, but he and Noel traveled separately with different halves of the band because they could not be together for longer than just the performance. I can't believe that. I love that little anecdote. Anyway, they hooked up. They got busy. And then he said, P.S. Do not tell anyone about this. My wife will find out. And she was like, Okay, well, I cannot believe I just fucked Liam Gallagher because the whole point of doing that is telling your friends you fucked Liam Gallagher. (laughs) Because she had grown up listening to Oasis. She was like an Oasis fan. She was the queen of fucking people she used to fangirl over. I know. They say don't meet your heroes. And she was like, I I fucked my heroes. Another guy is Mike Skinner in the streets. She was obsessed with him when she was young. She worked this Tokyo music festival specifically to meet him by stalking what his band's flight was, getting on the flight. And then there's like an hour and a half bus from the flight to the festival. She got on that bus. She had sex with him. They hooked up the whole festival. They came home. He didn't like her. She freaked out, was so mad. And what did she do a few years later when she became famous? She hired the streets. She hired his band right out from under him. she said, now you're just Mike Skinner and I'm Lily Allen in the streets, you bitch ass bitch. I also want to talk at this point a little bit more about the nepotism sitch. Sure. 
because she says one of her biggest issues in the tabloids, and she mentions this several times, she really wholeheartedly resents that they say that she kind of snuck in the door because of who her dad is. She said there was always a narrative, this always this overarching thing is she went to private school and her dad gave her everything she has, which is interesting because her dad was not world famous. Her dad was famous for his time in England. So to say that her dad handed her fame when he wasn't that famous is a bit much, but he, she also needs to acknowledge that it helped a lot. Listen, I'm not going to sit here and say he handed her his, her success. Did he get her a record label? Yes. Did that record deal tank? Yes. But when she says she became successful in spite of her connections, that's bananas. Like when Kendall Jenner's like, Bullshit. I've had to work harder than other models. Literally, no, you have not. That is insane. And I want to talk about it because I think it's a lot about the discussion of all privilege, which is just because somebody didn't come in and hand you the opportunity on a silver platter doesn't mean that you had advantages that most people don't have. It's that same thing where it's like you understand professionalism by definition because you grew up in a family where your dad or your mom had that type of job. So now it's easier for you to get into in the door in finance. And I think what Lily Allen doesn't realize is that by growing up, one, with a comedian father and a movie producer mother, to have that sort of proximity to the media is in itself a huge success. A lot of 15-year-old girls say, I want to be a pop star. Right. Most don't even know it's possible because they haven't ever seen anyone in their lives even go on to pursue it. And of course, a lot of people break out of that and it's like incredible. But I would even say like, I try to be a comic. My mom is an artist, even though that's a completely different field and she doesn't have a fucking connection in the world for me. But growing up being like, that is a type of profession that is feasible for me, that that is something that people do and I've seen it be done that's a type of leg up I mean that's the thing what you were saying is knowing what is possible I loved comedy growing up I loved it so much growing up in the Midwest and having parents who work in business I thought the only way that I could even have any proximity to the industry is if I become like an accountant for a movie studio that's genuinely what I thought I was going to do to get just close to it I never even thought about genuinely pursuing it until I was 23 years old. And again, I'm not saying I can't like truly I've not been through hardships. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm just saying that to not acknowledge that that is such an advantage. My thing is I'm always like everything is proximity Mm -hmm. and I really do believe it. Yeah. Your friendships end up being whoever lives closest to you. You are kind of the average of the people you hang out with. And she at 17 was hanging out with these super socialites. She said one of the girls in her crew ran the door for like the four coolest clubs in London. One of the clubs they were going to all the time because her friend ran the door. They were all producers. They were all DJs. Uh I mean, she was dating DJs. She met that guy because she was in Ibiza just like partying and going to sleep over a DJ. Like, you know what I mean? There is something about being near all these people. Growing up in London with a mom, I think a lot of what got her in the door was her style. And that was all because she was around cool, fashionable people. Even that story, she thinks that disproves the nepotism where she's like, my dad did get me a record deal and it didn't go anywhere. That kind of experience where you're in a studio and you have like a practice run so that when you show up to your own studio, you've been in it before. That's a huge leg up because a lot of people are showing up to studios having never been anywhere near it. And this is their one shot. You have this shot that you didn't even care about that went nowhere but that familiarity you had with studios after that, like that does go a long way. That's the thing is all of her denying of nepotism is in the semantics where she talks about how she had gone to this posh boarding school for like a semester before she got kicked out. And everyone has this narrative that she's this posh boarding school girl. 
And it's like, you did go there for a little bit. It's not about graduating there. It's about the fact that your stepfather for a minute was a very famous comedian who could pull strings and get you into boarding school after getting kicked out of two other schools. It's the fact that you constantly have these opportunities. My last thing that I want to point out is when she talks about the way that that guy, George Lamb, called her up and paid for her to cut a demo with top producers, what did he know about her? He had met her one night when she was selling drugs and needed a place to see an Ibiza. So he knew that she was this sloppy kind of wild child party girl with a famous last. I know we're saying we wouldn't know who Keith Allen is if it wasn't for Lily Allen, but they did. And clearly it meant a lot in England. So why did she get to cut a demo with top producers? Because someone recognized her and said she has the last name and the wild child grace that came from her upbringing at the very least make a splash on the headlines and he was dead right she didn't have songs she didn't show up and say let me pedal my wares for you sir please let me sing you my little tune yeah she was a famous guy's daughter and George was like trying to become a manager he didn't have anybody under his wings and he said all right this is my first entree in and he was dead right but what she had going for her was the last name Alan I know it reminds me so much of Leandra from Man Repeller she loves to overturn the nepotism narrative she says nothing was handed to me She grew up in New York City. She was rich. She had a wardrobe. She always talks about how... So Man Repeller, by the way, is a famous fashion blog that has since gone under because of racism. She would always talk in these interviews about how nothing was handed to her. She was just using the clothes in her own closet to put together interesting outfits. And it's like, man, you had those clothes in your closet and you knew... Tons of fashion people just from being around New York. She was written up in Refinery29, one of her first weeks doing Man Repeller, because she just knew people at Refinery29 from an internship she'd had at Vogue. She interned at Vogue. Yes, no one handed it to you, but... There was a path in the in the field. Nobody handed you a cake, but people were handing you ingredients, and you were able to put it together into a cake which is rare a lot of people can't do it yeah I mean Rob Kardashian not not all nepotism pans out I know a lot of rich idiot duds with everything handed to them every day could not get their shit but they do have a basket full of flour speaking of which and I do think that this has a lot to do with the nepotism and her not hyper privileged but fairly privileged upbringing is that she cannot fucking handle money she has no idea what she's doing she does not take responsibility for literally anything she talks about how her advance for her record deal she had to give half of it to her mom to pay back ten thousand dollars worth of parking tickets so she just really is bad with money she has no fucking idea what she's doing at one point she starts a business with her sister and loses 1.5 million squigglies they try to open a vintage clothing store in the central london or something and it turns out they didn't know anything 1.5, that's a lot when you're a celebrity. There was no reason to lose that much money. So due to this fact that she is completely unable to take responsibility for absolutely anything, she meets this man, Sam Cooper, and marries him because she wants to be looked after. She says very explicitly that she needed sort of a keeper and Sam was going to be that stable man to watch over her and keep her in order. And that was their agreement. She was out on tour and fucking around and pictures got back to him in the press. And he called her and he's like, look, I like you. I'm not going to play around. But if you want to be together, you have to act different. And she goes, I'll act different, but you have to promise to take care of me forever. And he was like, deal. Oy, oy, fucking oy. weird. Bad deal. Deal with the devil. They move in together October 2009. By May 2010, she's pregnant with her first son, George. The story of George is heartbreaking this is one of the intense tough parts of the book so when she was six months pregnant with her son she goes into labor early she's moved to a intense hospital and they're like the longer you can keep this baby in you the better so they have her on like an inverted bed they had like a 
clinch to her to keep her from dilating further. Lily was able to keep him in for another 10 days and then the water burst and they couldn't fight it anymore. And unfortunately, the baby did die while she was in labor. And it was like a really brutal story about how she had to keep pushing and it was like a difficult labor to begin with and they had to knock her out. And obviously she went into a horrible depression afterwards, as I think anybody would be. And this is where having a family is so important because it doesn't seem like anybody really stopped and said, this is a woman who's prone to depression. This is a woman who was already trying to commit suicide. And now something truly horrific has happened to her. Yeah. And the pain seemed overwhelming. I mean, she was just absolutely broken. She was out in the country. They had bought a Cotswold style house out in the country where they were going to raise their idyllic little family and, she was going to become the wife and mother and she was just out there by herself and it seems like things were spiraling. Then he proposed to her. This is another, I would say, bad omen for their relationship. She says, I would have said yes because I would have found it too awkward to say no. She says, I was in love with Sam, but even if I hadn't wanted to marry him, I would have said yes. It does seem like to write that means part of her didn't think it was the right move. She says it was about forming a proper life more than it was about knowing what she wanted at the time. And she says that she felt like he only proposed to her to give her something to look forward to. And I think it did work in a a little bit. She is very much an escapist person. So you have to give her a way to escape. And this wedding was a means of escapism from the tragedy of losing their son. So she talks about this wedding and Carl Lockerfeld dresses her. It seems like a party to the nines. She is pregnant at this wedding. And I do want to say her older sister, Sarah, wore a very revealing dress. Her older sister, Sarah, is very sexy. And apparently... Her older sister, Sarah, went tits out to the wedding. Like, not just tits out, but, like, tits bullseyed. And the press had a field day. They're all like, Lily Allen got showed up by her own sister at her own wedding. She was pregnant. She didn't even care. She goes to bed. And I do think she has this baby, this her first daughter, as a way of, like, running from the tragedy of her first son. Yeah, and she writes that her first daughter, Ethel, didn't fill the hole, but it was a very helpful distraction kind of a step forward and can I say something horrible that her mother-in-law said yeah after she delivered her baby her mom said at least we know Lily can have babies now which is I think one of the meaner things I've read in all of the memoirs we've read it's cruel beyond measure but she has this first daughter and unfortunately even though she's born the labor goes fine she was born with laryngomalacia which means her larynx collapsed on itself and so every time she inhaled collapsed larynx in turn obstructed her airway so it was very hard for her to breathe then it was almost impossible for her to feed so she was losing a ton of weight and she ended up having to be fed via tube which sounds horrible the experience is like you had to put the tube all the way down to the baby's stomach and then you would have to pull up droplets so that you could test the droplets to make sure that it was acid, which would prove to you that the tube had gotten down far enough. And then you would just put milk into her while she was asleep. And a lot of times she would wake up and throw it up and then you'd have to wait for her to go back to sleep to do it. Once again, like we said, she's already very prone to depression previous to any of this. Then she went through this trauma with her first son. Now, I believe this was about a year later. This was a pretty quick succession. Now she's having to deal with this baby with a pretty difficult medical issue to deal with and she said she had really bad postpartum depression that went very undiagnosed and so to run away from the problems of this baby she had a second baby marnie first she had ethel then she had marnie marnie was healthy so now she has these two babies now she's mothering she's still a recording artist she was the primary breadwinner for their family so she did have to go back to work at some point the label was like let's do this album number three 
Number two just fell right out of her. Number three was an arduous process. I mean, she had three babies in very rapid pace. She'd gotten married. She was just dealing with so much. And she said she just really lost an entire sense of self. She had no idea who she was at this point. They didn't want her really talking about motherhood. She also has some really good points about this is that we love hearing about dating. We love hearing about love. We love hearing about all these things. But motherhood, people have decided is just you better keep that on the DL. Nobody wants to hear your mommy shit. But she needed to make this money because they couldn't afford the mortgage on their house. Yeah. This is another one of those instances where she goes, I have no idea how much money I've made in my life. It just comes and it goes. And she needed to go earn. However, what she does next is she comes out with She's This, which is her third studio album. First song off the album is It's Hard Out Here here. for a Bitch, which you guys may remember. The song itself was well-liked and well-received. The video was critiqued for being racist. And I went back and watched, and I do exactly see what they're talking about. I do also see how that was something that went over her head until it was called out to her. And I respect that she took from that the opportunity to learn about intersectional feminism because she wrote a feminist song and it just did not even occur to her that feminism isn't all one thing for everybody. She's starting to get a little bit of flack in the press again. First, there was that incident, which kind of turns people quite against her. Then she's quoted as saying motherhood is boring. Which it is. She says she loves being a mother, but the day-to-day of just sitting around watching a baby bop around, I mean, you can only do that for so long. I get how it's magical when it comes over you that you're like, wow, these are my babies, and I'm so happy that I have them. But the day-to-day is very tedious, and they're not good conversationalists. People really hated that comment from her. Anyway, so then she has to go on tour for Jesus, an album that is coming off of some pretty negative press for her, and shit hits the motherfucking fan it seems like everything that could go wrong does go wrong so mm-hmm. she is coming in with pretty negative press then she fires her booker he's her longtime friend they've known each other since the old days and he freaks out and sues her and we also don't get any information on why she fired him but he's pretty mad about it so he comes back he wants a million dollars and she's like there's no way you would have made a million dollars probably she wouldn't have made a million dollars it sounds like her stock wasn't worth a whole lot of the time. Yeah. Next, she gets a letter from her lawyer that her manager, who she had previously been speaking to three or four times a day, every day for five years, is quitting. Well, he doesn't say anything to her. He just serves her a letter of notice and dips. She does not explain why. Then she goes to Arizona because her family is undergoing this sort of like group therapy experience. Mm-hmm. She goes and spends a week in intensive therapy with her family. Her dad, Keith Allen, her mom, her brother, Alfie, and Sarah. Yeah, so those are all at this therapy place in Arizona. So she can only go to a little bit of it because she has to go on tour. So she goes, like you said, for the unpacking of everyone's problems where everyone's just really unloading what the issues are before the therapist can really therapize the problems. Mm -hmm. So all she walks away with is hearing everyone in her family blame her for all of their problems. She says her feeling is that her mom and Sarah have this very codependent relationship. Remember that Sarah's from a previous husband and I think her mom had her at like 20 mm-hmm. and she talks about how when her mom gave birth to Sarah they were alone in the hospital and she feels like since that moment they've just had a really tight bond that nobody else could get involved with and then Alvy at that point even though now he's been in eight seasons in Game of Thrones at that point he was still a dork so she <laughs> says she felt like everybody was just blaming her also she says throughout their lives Sarah and the mom had this very codependent bond and then Alfie because he was the baby had some extra tension there but because she was just the middle and the nothing she felt like the nothing so she leaves with the message that everybody in your family hates you and thinks you're the problem she had just fired her booking agent who's now suing her 
Her manager had left her. She goes on this bangers tour with the streets. Then they all quit. We don't know why, but she says they got into fights because she didn't like the way they were arranging the music. They were making it sound too poppy, and so she wanted to redo it, and they just resign. They were like, you're not letting us do our jobs good. You're just the voice. We're the music. You need to just let us do it. Here's the thing. Through all, all of this, she keeps being like, and so, of course, I'm thinking this is all my fault. And I'm kind of thinking, well, is it? She's like, you know, all these things are going wrong in my life, and... My broken brain made me think it must be me. And I was like, I don't know. I do think at this point it might have been you. I will say I actually don't feel like she was taking enough blame for it when I was reading it. I don't feel like she did say it must be me enough. I feel like she kept on saying, like, how could all this be happening? What could be the common denominator? She was mm-hmm. saying at the time I thought it was me in the way that a victim of like sexual assault goes at the time. I thought it must have been my fault. But now I know, of course, it's never my fault. But she had that kind of tone. Like at the time, I thought it was my fault. But now I know better. And I'm like, I don't know. I think in 10 years, you're going to look back and be like, that must have been your fault. Not the family stuff. Because obviously in a family, there's a lot of dynamics and you're the child. But I do think if your band quits, your manager quits and you find your agent. I mean, she says that people were coming to her being like, the vibe on this tour is fucking bad. Well, she was hugely addicted to drugs and alcohol. On this tour, she gets more and more into drugs and alcohol than she's ever been in her life. Her tour routine is like she wakes up she casually does whatever she'll do a bunch of cocaine and then she does a ton of vicodin and she'll have a ton of vodka right before the stage and the routine after stage was to hit a strip club that was her go-to every day was to hit a strip club also on this tour turns out she had never had an orgasm in her life she's married at this point has never in her life had an orgasm she says she was never much into masturbation never into porn or anything never into self-exploration so she starts deciding to explore with her sexuality With other people. Women. She says it's not cheating if it's women. Yes. She never calls herself bisexual. And I actually don't think she is bisexual. I just think that she was so lost that anyone who came on to her, she would come on to as well. Yeah. So she starts hooking up with a lot of her backup dancers, which I also think is something worth exploring. That is very toxic. She's taking them to strip clubs. She's fucked up on drugs all the time. Hooking up with all these people who work for her. All the other people who work for her are quitting. Then she starts hiring hookers. Yeah, so one day in Portland, she's like, I need something more. So she gets into high-class escorts. Yeah. Female high-class escorts. Spending a lot of money on them. And meanwhile, the whole time she's going, where was Sam? Why wasn't Sam coming to get me? She went on tour for nine full months and says she was drinking so much that at one point somebody came in with a glass of water and then they couldn't tell what was her vodka and what was his water. So she went to take a sip of each to tell him which one was water and she couldn't tell. Yeah. That's how much alcohol she was consuming. That's how numb she was to everything. She was cheating on him recklessly and she kept being like, my hope was that he would hear how badly I was doing and come and rescue me. Don't forget, dear listeners, he is at home raising two children under two years old. Yeah. Full time. And she is cheating on him and she is not calling him. I get that these were desperate cries for help, but I do think to expect him to come in and bail you out like he is your dad or mom. He is your partner who is taking on a huge burden of the family. Look, the drugs and the alcohol one thing, but at the end of the day, like your husband is your romantic partner. And part of that is this agreement that you're going to be faithful to one another unless you have said otherwise. And they had not said otherwise. And she was specifically cheating on him, which is breaking that deal, expecting him to then pick up and come bail her out after he had been home with their kids. She seems to have had no respect for what it is to raise children. Like that's hard too. She's out on tour. And I know she's saying it's lonely on tour. And of course she was acting out not because she was having all this fun partying. She was acting out because she was depressed. 
but still she was being deeply hurtful. Like the way she was acting out was not just self-sabotaging. It was to hurt him. And then she was like, how dare he not drop our two children on the floor and run and come get me and make me feel better in another country. I want to say one more thing about this tour. One of her hookups is she meets Zoe Kravitz out at a party, makes out with her. Zoe Kravitz was out later spotted with ASAP Rocky. She had just been home and one of her daughters had worms or something. Threadworms, which must be British for something. And so she finds out that she might have threadworms and should tell everyone that she's been close to that they could have threadworms. And she's like, I just could not tell Zoe Kravitz that her and ASAP Rocky might have threadworms. After this tour ends, she realizes that she has been really overdoing it, especially in a way to expect forgiveness, to just go home with open arms. She's petrified that her daughters just won't even remember her. So she decides to just not go home at all. She tells her husband that she needs to stay in L.A. for three more months and work on music. So she gets this house out in Malibu and her and a couple of musicians move in and just keep partying. She does not get work done. She's not on a work trip. She's just partying. And then it all kind of comes to a head when she goes to Kate Hudson's Halloween party. Dressed as Dr. Luke, who had just been sued by Kesha because of those allegations against him. And this is another thing where we both went, okay, Lily Allen does make a huge effort to be like, I'm on Kesha's side. What happened to Kesha is horrible. I believe her 100%. And she goes, it was inappropriate for me to dress up as Dr. Luke. She does not explicitly apologize. And we both felt like... I'm pretty sure she also wrote Dr. Luke gynecology department on her costume. Yes, she dressed up in scrubs. Which is horrific. I really felt like more than being like, I'm on Kesha's side, it would have been better to be like, Kesha, if you read this, I'm so sorry. That was so inappropriate. So she shows up. She's really fucked up. She tells the story about how... Orlando Bloom is there and they know each other through one of her mom's connections. And I think that's like a small nod to how truly connected her mom was. She's like, my mom's best friend is Orlando Bloom's manager. Yeah. So I've known Orlando for a while. I'm like trying to hook up with him. I'm straddling him. And then she does actually a very Claire Parker move. Do you know that this is a famously a Claire Parker move? I did not. She to become concussed at a party is a Claire Parker move. Specifically, she headbutts him. I think she headbutts him by accident. I famously in college one time headbutted a guy on purpose to impress somebody that I liked <laughs> romantically. And then I got a huge knot on my head. I did have to go get an MRI because I started to get migraines and they were worried I had concussed myself. Did you? No. Okay. But it still wasn't good. <laughs> I do think for you to bang your head against something and be like, look how hard my head is, is something that I can really picture you doing. Well, what happened was growing up, my dad used to always headbutt me as a baby. And then he would headbutt me harder and harder as I grew up. But because my head was so hard from all of the headbutting calluses, so I couldn't feel it. And so I was at this party and I had a crush on this guy on the baseball team and we were kind of flirting. And I was like, look how hard I can headbutt. And I headbutted a guy named Dario who did go on to play for the Seattle Mariners. He was built like a man named Dario would be built, if you can imagine. So was this guy impressed with your headbutting? We hooked up. Much like Lily Allen's connections and nepotism, I think we hooked up in spite of the headbutt and not because of it. (laughs) Do you know what I found out? What? That my dad had not been headbutting me hard my whole life and I had not developed a headbutting callus, but he had actually just been tapping my head lightly the whole time as a joke. And I did not know. (laughs) So let me say this story where Lily Allen goes to hook up with Orlando Bloom and then headbutts him and then wakes up unconscious on you Kate Hudson's really kitchen. I was like, we've all been there, sister. <laughs> we've all been there. Okay, so anyway, she gets knocked unconscious after colliding with Orlando Bloom's head and uh, wakes up in Kate Hudson's kitchen with Chris Martin tending to her. He can tell that she's really fucked up, so he's like, I'm going to drive you home. He drives her home, tucks her in, 
and then leaves a note on her refrigerator being like, hey, it's Chris. Call me. So she calls him and he and Gwyneth were in the midst of a conscious uncoupling. And they invite her over and take her for a walk and like kind of sit her down. And they're like, we're worried about you. We have a great marriage counselor. Take us up on it. Let us like gift you our therapist yes. to help you. And she's like, I don't need your help. But then she sat down and was like, whoa, I really need help. So she goes home. She goes home. And I think she goes home to acknowledge that the marriage is over. And they both know it. I think it took a few months for them to finally acknowledge it. But things were really bad. And they do break up by that fall. I remember. I remember. <laughs> it's not my memory. She remembers. <laughs> We are Lily Allen. Lily Allen is we. After the fallout in Arizona with the family therapy, nobody in her family is talking to her, specifically her mom. Yeah. Her and her mom don't talk for months all through the bangers tour. So you can imagine how bad that was. I mean, she literally had nobody. She said that her friend stopped talking to her because she was so isolated. So she was in a bad way. She calls her dad because she's desperate, which is always a mistake. And she calls him over and he, she's like, I think I have to leave Sam. And he goes, are you sure it's not just because of your career, because your CD is doing so badly? And this is another interesting is example of the tabloids controlling her life from outside in. Because she's like, Gracia magazine had just done this whole article about how bad my third album was doing and how like my life was unraveling because of it. And it was like, here I was telling my dad, me and my husband have to get a divorce and he's going, you're not upset about the divorce. You're upset about the album, which is true because I just read it. And I'm sure I played into it. I do feel like when you feel like the world hates you, it's going to reflect, but there were bigger problems than just the album. Totally. She was a drug addict and an alcoholic and she was cheating on him constantly. Yeah. And addicted to like getting prostitutes. Yeah. And was scared to face her own children. So they break up. They do a pretty good job of staying cordial and even close. Yes. Friends wise. Considering the way that their marriage ended, I think it would have been very difficult for a lot of people to stay nice to each other. So they do their best and she starts dating her next boyfriend, Dan. She very quickly, before they're formally separated, officially separated, she starts dating Dan. And one night, Dan is sleeping over and a man breaks into their apartment and she calls the police and she's all freaked out. And they're like, it was probably just a burglary or someone just stumbled into the wrong apartment. And she goes, I don't think so. I just have this weird feeling. That's not what happened. And so she starts going through her Instagram and her Twitter because she remembered these weird comments she got online. And sure enough, she's able to realize for herself that this is a man who has been stalking her for years. Also, when he broke in and was screaming at her bedroom door, he stole her purse at some point because yeah. they were able to get him out and he got away before the police got there. He says that he wrote the fear. So the police brand this as a robbery. And she's like, I just don't think it is. She tries to go about her life. Five days later, she comes home and her purse is burnt to a crisp returned. Yes. So she calls the police and she's like, this clearly isn't a burglary because why would he return everything all cut up burnt? And they were like, fair enough. And then they remembered that this man had been stalking her for years and that he had tried to break into the house one time. He had stolen a bunch of mail and he had sent these insane scribbly letters to her and her manager and anybody attached to her saying that she had stolen the song The Fear. And that she owed him money. Yeah. There were a lot of weird isolated incidents that felt like isolated incidents because they happened over the course of seven years and they were all kind of random. So it took a lot of digging through her tweets and through everything to put it all together and realize it was one guy, Alex Gray, who had just been stalking her for years and through doing a ton of work on her own, she had to hire her own lawyer. She had to just do a lot of work to get him put away in a mental hospital because it was found that he was schizophrenic and the mom found messages he had sent to his own mother being like, I'm going to murder a celebrity tonight. 
And I just stole all this money from a celebrity's house. And the mom had forwarded those emails to the police. The police never told Lily Allen. When she was trying to make a case against him with her own private lawyer, she was like, can you please send me the letters he wrote to me that I had sent you in the past? And they go, oh, we destroyed all that evidence. And she was like, why would you destroy evidence? I mean, the police treated her terribly. And they just kept trying to treat her like she was crazy. She had to do a photo shoot the very next day. And she said she acted insane at it. She pushed away her friends. She broke stuff in the dressing room because she felt... So scared and like gaslit. She had no control. Someone had broken into her home, which is a safe space. And she was being told that she was crazy for thinking that that was dangerous. Yeah, a place where her asleep. and her children were asleep. I mean. Yeah. And she said the way he broke in. I know for him to have known where my bedroom was in the apartment means he's been in there before. Because seven years ago, he had been able to break in and grab all that mail. So he had been lurking ever since. Yeah. Horrifying. Luckily, they do catch him after the burnt purse shows up. They install CCTV. They arrest him. He's finally sent to a mental facility. And she makes a big push that she doesn't want him to go to prison. She just wants him to get the help he needs. But then she goes on to be like, the police fucked me over. Yeah. They didn't take my shit seriously at all, which they didn't. She's like, no matter what I told them, they just kept treating me like I was some melodramatic star. Mm-hmm. And so she goes on to publish an article about it. And because of this book, even... A cop reached out to her and was like, I had never considered how it might feel to be a woman in this situation. So now we're going to try to make changes so that it's not so awful to be a stalked woman. Yeah. And they did actually change the laws about how they treat women who are being stalked and harassed and how they go about fixing it. So she, after the break in, spends the next six months of her life basically obsessed with this case, understandably. But because she felt like the police didn't do her justice, she started going to every single trial on her own. Every time he had a hearing, and after he was arrested, it was like six months, I guess, before he went to court. And then the court case took six months to resolve. But she said that entire time, she felt like it was her full-time job to handle this case. And she does make a big note about if this is what it's like as a white woman with money and fame, what do you do if you're anybody else? If you have any less privilege, you must just be thrown to the wayside. And I feel like that's a very good point. But after all this happens, she's sort of a nervous wreck. Sort of indeed. After the vodka thing happens where she couldn't tell if it was vodka or water, it was a huge thing in her head where she's like, I have a problem, but she's just not ready to do anything about it. And that becomes kind of a common theme for her is acknowledgement of issues. She just doesn't feel like she has the time or the patience to work on it, which I get that. So when she gets back from she's this, she knows that she needs to get sober. So she decides to get sober. And the night before she gets sober, she goes out with this record executive and tells him, and he's like, well, let's celebrate with tequila. <laughs> they black out. She wakes up. She calls her driver the next day. And she's like, do you remember how I got home? And he's like, yeah, you and the record executive went back to your apartment. And then 45 minutes later, I drove him home. So she's like, well, I have no idea what happened, but I felt a lot of shame. I felt like it was all my fault and I didn't want to deal with it. And also she talks a lot about how she feels the Me Too movement hasn't really gotten to the music industry the way it's gotten to actors and the rest of media because of these insane record label contracts. And she goes, you look at Kesha and you see you're bound by a contract. You can't just leave. You can't quit a movie. You can't recast. Like you're in it for life. She signed a five album deal when she was, I think, 19 or 20 years old that she is still in. You are stuck. As much as I was saying she doesn't take enough blame, she does have this awareness that the narrative around Lily Allen is that she does a lot of drugs and she drinks a lot and she is rough around the edges and she's hard to work with. But she always has this awareness that she has this bad reputation and she can't come out against someone with more power and money. She also doesn't know what happened. So she doesn't acknowledge it with him. Six months later, she goes out and drinks again. 
And she had been sober for six months. And she said in her head that her goal had been to be sober for six months. She's in the Caribbean on a work thing. They go out to dinner with a record executive. And she's like, I'm leaving. I'm going to meet with a friend. And apparently he's so rude. And he goes, don't leave me here with these other people. Like, don't embarrass me like that. And she's like, I was not about to be told what to do by some man. I left him up with a friend. But he came and found us. He decides she's too drunk and fucked up, takes her to the hotel, puts her to bed in his bed. Later, he said it's because neither of them could find her hotel key. She's like, that's not true because I found my hotel key immediately. It was just in my pocket. She wakes up later that night naked in his bed and feels him pressing his dick against her. And she jumps out, screams at him, runs to her room. And she's like so upset, decides she's going to do something. She goes and meets him and he goes, you can't tell anybody it would break my girlfriend's heart. And Lily's like, I was put in this position of... I felt responsible for his girlfriend. I felt like it was my fault for getting that drunk, even though he put me in his bed. He demanded I leave the club and put me in his bed. It's just the shame and the guilt of it all. It's unfortunately so common that people just blame themselves, even though every single time it was his choice. And then he guilted and manipulated her into being like, this is your secret to bear because my girlfriend's emotions are yours to handle. I really appreciated that she used this chapter to talk a lot about how it was not just her situation, that every young woman in the industry has dealt with a story like this, with a man like this, with maybe this man specifically. She also does not reveal his name. She even mentions, you know, being 20 years old and trying to get in with her first label. She talks about trying to get her second record deal and hooking up with a label person then, not really wanting to, but not really knowing how to say no because she was trying to get a record deal and he, you know, really held that power over her. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate the way she doesn't make this chapter just about herself, even though she does have a lot of trauma worth telling. But I think she is doing a lot with her platform to shout this from the friggin' rooftops. And just be like, this is so common. When women start speaking up, it will crumble. I feel like the one thing that came out of me too is like, if it happened to you, it was never just you. Like no Mm -hmm. man has ever had one mark. And that's sort of where the shame lies in being like, I don't want to be the one to break this guy's girlfriend's heart. And it's like, okay, well, what about the 50 other women? He's probably done this to as well. Yeah. And I think that's what we've learned is as soon as one person is able to speak up, other people will come forward too. Just to recap, she is... Going through slash recently divorced, she has a stalker that has just been arrested. She has been assaulted. Her albums are not performing. She has two children that she's very overwhelmed by. She's trying to get sober. She has the loss of her first child. I mean, it's been a bad couple of years. And she has a full breakdown. She finds out that Sam is dating somebody new and she panics about it. So he moves on with this woman named Georgie who was kind of adjacent to everything in her life. She finds out about this woman. She looks at her Instagram. She realizes they know a lot of the same people. They've always been in similar circles, but just right outside of her field of view. I think specifically the betrayal of being like, all of my friends know her. Why didn't anybody tell me? Yes. And also, again, she talks about how They had been doing a lot of therapy. Mm -hmm. They had become very open with each other about other people. He made her in therapy write down everybody she had ever cheated on him with. And she also had been very honest since the break-in about the guys that she had been dating, about who she was with, about everything in their life she was very honest about. And so the fact that he was hiding this woman, I think, really fucked her up. Literally breaks down. She goes on this huge drug and alcohol bender. She takes a ton of sleeping pills. She wakes up in the middle of the night and decides she's going to drive off a bridge. Her boyfriend physically has to stop her, Dan. She demands to go to Sam's house. She shows up at Sam's house where her children are. She has a hysterical fit. She's breaking all the furniture. He calls her mom. Her mom 
runs down with her boyfriend. They physically have to restrain her and bring her to the mom's house. She finally falls asleep at the mom's house. And then she wakes up. She goes on another rampage where she's just self-harming and screaming and breaking things. They call her godmother who comes over. And she's, like, looking at her godmother and just ramming her head against cabinets. And the godmother's like, you have to call the police. So she has the police called on her. I guess whatever the British version of a 5150. She's voluntarily admitted into a psychiatric ward. She refuses to take the psychiatric meds. And they're like, listen, lady, you can refuse, but we will just commit you involuntarily. And if we do that, this will be on a record for the rest of your life. It'll be hard to get visas, and your children will have welfare checks every few months until they're 18. And so she settles down and agrees. And then I guess after two months of therapy, she's able to wean off the meds and find herself. But that's kind of where the book ends. Yeah, she talks about, you know, seeing things in a new light, working on a new album, being much more willing to say no, and really just working through the shit because she has a lot of shit to work through. Yeah, she says she tries to find herself and figure out how to fit all the parts of her into a whole. Yeah, and I think she's still a work in progress because this book came out in... 2018 and then we got a version that's updated with a new chapter where she's like by the way me and Dan broke up she is now married she just recently posted on Instagram that she is one year sober oh good for her so here's what I want to talk about here's something that I think is interesting to discuss we talk a lot about people writing a book too soon and I think she was about 33 when this came out I don't think that that was a problem that she wrote this book Young. I honestly think it is good that she almost wrote it still in it. I know a lot of times we're like, you need clarity. I think because she was going to therapy and she is, she talks about being hyper self-aware. She is self-aware, not enough to stop anything, but enough to know that she's a narcissist, to know that she's codependent, to yeah. give labels to these things. And I do feel like by writing it while she's still kind of in it, it gives a very honest depiction about what was going on. I feel like the more removed she is from these details, the less we would get. And I just say... We've read about a lot of pop star breakdowns. Nobody has ever been honest about the drugs and the alcohol and the hysteria. And I kept thinking about Mariah Carey when she was yeah. 51, 50. And her big thing is that she was doing the dishes and then took a nap. And for some reason, they called the cops on her. And I'm like, this sounds right. This sounds like the kind of behavior that gets police to take you away in handcuffs and institutionalize you. And I think it was very I mean, she was not safe not being institutionalized. But what I was going to say is part of me wishes she was a little tiny tiny bit further removed from it because I think like we said there are some things that I don't know if she's quite worked through yet and I'd be interested in her perspective on them but I also a lot of the things that we read I think this is all informative to who you are and you can work through it and then write about it but these things I agree that they're kind of a chapter that she should close she just got married again recently she from her Instagram looks like she's very happy very sober very cute she looked so cute at her second wedding I think that, you know, leaving drugs and hookers and a lot of these behaviors and things in the past is healthy and right. And I don't think she was approaching a lot of things in her life from a healthy mindset. And so trying to just sort of close the book on those things while still being very honest about them, I don't know that it would be healthy for her to dig those up again. And I think she could write a second memoir being like, here's the next chapter and it would be a next chapter there's new things to write about from a new perspective a sober mind I would be curious about them I agree she has that line actually when she talks about her relationship with Sam where she's like I don't remember the good times because when we broke up I had to break up with him and she's like I know there were good times but I've just locked that part of my brain off because I can't revisit that relationship emotionally anymore it was too much 
And so she's like, there were good times, but I'm not going to get into them. And I do agree that she kind of had to get this all out of her and then move on. And I do think the conversation we were having before, what does it mean? Her voice, her songwriting. I think to her, this is just as much songwriting as any of it is. Like writing is writing to her. And I think that she will eventually graduate to becoming more of a writer than a pop star, really. Yeah. And maybe she always has albums on the side, but I could see her doing another book in a few years and ultimately having like just as many essays as exactly albums. Yeah. And I think that'd be really interesting. And then one other thing that made me very sad about this book is just all the discussion of exploitation in the music industry. If you look at it, she is someone who had already been institutionalized. I mean, her career started just after she was released from her first time being committed. Every celebrity Every pop star, a lot of these women have had these massive breakdowns. And it's because I think that they're not looking for a stable person with a stable family who can handle this shit. They're looking for someone that they can take advantage of. And then they push that person to their absolute limit. And then they get what they can get out of it. And then they, Mona Lisa, they want to watch them fall. It really is true. When you look at how she was discovered, she was discovered homeless in Ibiza selling ecstasy, right? It basically trade sex for a place to stay. And that guy was like, now you could be a star. <laughs> And I think Lily Allen actually does a very good, honest job. I mean, I think she is as honest and raw as she can be. She gives you every unfavorable detail about herself. I do think she has to emotionally still work through it. The blame and the acceptance yeah. and the codependency. She's not there yet, but I do think intellectually she can see what happened and she's very honest about what happened. And I do think she talks a lot about what we always say, which is the bullshit attention that you get from the people above you she says both the flattery and the degradation they're both from this place of having nothing to do with you and they give you so much it's hard not to think you're worth it when everyone around you is filling you with hot air all the time and the way that that does fuck with your brain and your sense of self and then you're just you have nothing yeah yeah they put you in a hot air balloon and then they pop the balloon feel for her man back to what you're saying about whether or not you liked her I do not think she was fun to be friends with at Me her either. bottom. I mean, <laughs> Lord knows her own family and friends and husband couldn't handle her. She left her own children. But I do think sober Lily Allen would be a really, a really fun dinner. A companion. really fun dinner. I, I think she'd be very like bubbly and silly. She's smart. She's the kind of person I meet at a party and we both just start talking shit about someone we hate. Yes. So I do like her and I do think this was a really good book. And I do wish her the best on her journey to a healthy living. And I hope that her children are able to break the cycle. You and me both. It's so sad that her whole childhood was marked with feeling isolated and abandoned. And then the first thing she did was leave her children for a year. Tough stuff. When you don't know any better, when you have no models to show you alternatives, it is hard to break. But I'm proud of her for getting sober and going to therapy and working through it. I mean, it really seems to me like there is a lot of opportunity for everything to go really well for her. I feel like she can adapt and have, she has a very interesting perspective as somebody who's been on the inside of it. Yeah. And she will continue to shed light. So God bless you guys. Rate, review, subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to get your worm or unhinged shirt. And as always, subscribe to the Patreon for the extra details that we don't yeah. tell anybody. Worms don't rat. And that's where we're taking the secrets to the Patreon. Love you. Bye.